What's going on guys? It's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with a brand new episode of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Okay, thanks for tuning in, ladies and gents. As always, if you did miss last week's show, you can still catch that on demand on Blog Talk Radio or, of course, over on lordsofpain.net, as you can indeed catch all the great shows here on LOP Radio, uh, past and present, on demand as well, so do go check those out. I hope you had a great Christmas yesterday, uh, and I hope you're not too hungover, because I am going to be here for an extra length of time this week. Uh, I've been telling you it's going to be two hours, but we'll see how we go. I mean, if we don't get to the two-hour mark, ultimately we don't get to it, but uh, hopefully uh, it shouldn't be too much of an issue, because we're going to be discussing some real big ideas this week. Long-time listeners or frequent listeners of Sports Entertainment is Dead will know exactly what's coming up today. Uh, I've been advertising it for a while. I am absolutely delighted to bring uh, a living LOP legend back to Lords of Pain Radio, my predecessor in this Wednesday slot. He is the author of the two books of Sports Entertainment, so I guess this is a bit like Shawn Michaels walking into Montreal to a certain degree. Um, <laughs> and uh, he is, of course, the former author of Doctor's... Well, still is the author of Doctor's Orders now and then, and the former host of the doc says it's the good doctor chad matthews welcome to the show my friend i have been looking forward to this for a while i've been listening to your show religiously since it debuted and it has been a it's been been excellent to transition more into fan of podcast than host of podcast mode and putting yours at the forefront so it's a pleasure to be here thank you for having me those are some very kind words uh as indeed were the words you had to say about me on your farewell podcast, which is another one that you guys listening can go and check out if you haven't done already. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a pretty epic listen in itself and is well worth the time it takes to uh, to seek that out. Um, I brought you on, Doc, because this is Sports Entertainment is Dead, and you are the guy who wrote the book on, quite literally wrote the book on Sports Entertainment now twice. Um, of course, the latest, the second uh, book you've done is The Greatest Matches and Rivalries of the WrestleMania Era, which you guys listening can go and pick up if you haven't done already. I wrote a re- review of it on lordsofpain.net not too long ago, uh, and it is a very addictive read, so congratulations on getting that published, my friend. I know it was certainly, a, a, I believe, a bit of a dream dream project of yours. Thank you very much. Yes, it was. It certainly was a dream project. I, uh, once I finished that first book in 2013, I immediately got into thinking about what the next thing I could write would be. And, you know, looking at matches and breaking them down has always been pretty much the biggest passion that drove my adult wrestling fandom. So cool. Excellent. Well, it's, it's, it's I mean, obviously I, I disagreed with large chunks of the underlying theory, which is why I wanted to bring you on because I thought it might be a good fun show for us to finally sit down and talk. Because we've kind of banded back and forth on this on social media a bit over the years, uh, but we've never really sat down and specifically had, you know, that that sort of that dedicated conversation where we just hash it out. Because of course, uh, we are. I guess if there was a spectrum of how to receive pro wrestling as a fan, then you and I would sit on on polar opposite ends of that. Do you think? I think that there is there's partially some truth to that. I, I don't okay. necessarily think that you and I are on polar opposite realms because a lot of the stuff that you say, I agree with. Uh, I guess there's just uh, there's, hope th- there's a yet. couple of there's a couple of <laughs> yeah there's a couple of fundamental things about 
the way that I receive it that's different than yours. While I guess it's not as black and white as that. I'd like to think of myself as someone who sure. absolutely agrees with your por- performance art thoughts. And if I apologize, folks, if you can hear the 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 yard guy just happened to show up <laughs> and is blowing leaves everywhere, and it I can hear it very audibly. I hope you can't hear it quite to the extent that I can. I wouldn't worry too much about it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, okay. If they can, if they could put it with my voice every single week, I'm sure they could put up with a few, a uh, few clanks in the background. Um, okay. I'll try not to let it distract me as much as I might be distracted <laughs> by it as a listener if I heard it. All but right. anyway, yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think very highly of your performance art theory. But I definitely do have. Uh, a few fundamental ways that I look at it differently than well, you. Well, the only reason why I sort of say that is because as I was sat reading um, your second book, The Greatest uh, Matches and Rivalries of the WrestleMania Era, um, it actually on my bookshelf, it sits next to my own book, 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die. And yes, I am a bit of a sad sap who has a copy of his own book, folks. Um, I have uh, mine too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> good. That's, that's kind of relieving to hear. Something to be proud of, brother. You gotta own that. Well, quite absolutely. Um, but it was it. It struck me that you could, and I, that there's going to be certain people listening who are probably going to go, "Oh, that he's going to say this because he's just trying to shield the books." And I am trying to shield the books, but at the same time, they do. I mean, I felt like yours complemented mine. 101 WWE matches to see before you die. Uh, in an interesting way, because, you know, obviously 101 WWE matches to see before you die does two things, which is first to spell out, uh, and in fact, you probably know it better than better than anyone other than myself, if not better than myself at this point, but, um, that's, you know, spells out how to the benefits of and how to receive your pro wrestling as performance art, first of all, uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the matches, they're not all, some of them are included for because they're bad examples of something, but a lot of them are included because they are, you know, great examples of um, what a match can become when it's viewed at through performance art. And then alternatively, you know, the greatest matches and rivalries of the WrestleMania era. I mean, if there was to be a, a fan's Bible of sorts on what I would consider to be the, the, the sort of the traditionalist, let's call it reception of pro wrestling, or at least I guess the predominant way that a lot of contemporary fans digest wrestling. It feels to me, and this is something that I spoke about on the very first edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead, that a lot of reception to wrestling these days from the fan base's perspective is based largely from a, um, a, a critical mode of thought rather than um, you know a passive uh, mode of thought that might be akin to an audience member in a film or a TV show or something where, you, where you're focused solely on the story. Sure. I think that right now we're in this mode and it's hard to get out of this mode, but since, you know, hanging up the proverbial microphone and and actually just becoming more of a fan and less of a critic these last few months, it's easier to see that the way that the vast majority of us online receive pro wrestling from that critical point of view is it's almost like we have replaced looking at the sports side of sports entertainment. It's almost like we've replaced when we're rooting for some team to win, we've replaced that sort of mindset toward matches that get that five-star caliber rating. And mm. that that's how we, like the win is if the match is great. So it's become so much, 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 much less about the fiction and so much more about the, the sporting element, if you will. And I'd say that's definitely one of the things that I've always 
gravitated to is when I found out that there was such a thing as star ratings, which I know you and I will get into a little bit later. <laughs> when I found out there was such a thing, such a way to label pro wrestling matches, when you start to have the veil lifted and realize that, you know, it's quote unquote fake, you know, but use the, the performance art label. I'm much more, I think is much more appropriate, but you get into that when you discover that there's something out there that you can label mm. these pro wrestling matches with, and it's, it opens up a whole new way of looking at it. So if you're not, if you know that the outcome's predetermined, then you look at it in, in a, just a totally different way. And, and looking at it from the perspective of how good was that match that opens up a whole different portal to even like go back and watch something like, Bret Hart versus the British Bulldog at SummerSlam 92, which I remember vividly was one of the first ones I went back and, and, and looked back at after having learned about and started to study star ratings is wow. Okay. I loved that in the moment and I loved it as a fan, as a kid. And I loved it for a very specific set of reasons. I loved it because of the drama. I loved it because I was invested in Bret Hart as a character. I loved it because the crowd cared so much. So organically I gravitated toward it. But then we start asking, well, how good was it? Then you start breaking it down from that type of point of view, like you would when you look at a great piece of dialogue in film, if you're not thinking about it in film, then you just have a great entertainment, emotional reaction to it. But if you know that that's considered to be great, then you can go back and you can break down why it's great and to me, that was that that really laid the foundation for what ultimately became the second book, which if we're shilling our books, uh, mine is on sale for six ninety nine and it's ebook format for the next two days. So if you want to pick it up and you haven't checked it out yet, I think you'd enjoy it. Please, please check it out. It but, is uh, genuinely worth the money, folks. It's that that laid the foundation for that book is all the way back in 2002 when I discovered that there were people who thought critically about wrestling. It just opened up a totally different way to look at it that I found utterly fascinating and still do. Well, can I ask them, because it's, you've, anybody who follows Doc on social media or indeed has read your um, columns or listened to your podcast uh, will probably be well aware at this point that, uh, and I you know, I hope I don't speak out of turn when I say this, that you're going through a bit of a, a funk with WWE specifically um, that I believe kind of it was Lesnar's um return at Hell in a Cell that I guess catalyzed your decision to what seems to be have stepped away from WWE to a certain degree um if 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 any role at all how how much of a role do you think just being um and, and I wonder if it's the right term to use but I'm going to use it anyway preoccupied with um you know that sort of um uh mode of thought about pro wrestling where the, the the veil's been lifted so so thinking about you know the backstage stuff and the the critical analyses of of not just matches but you know uh, the way that stories progress and all that sort of stuff uh, and having that active uh critical mindset and approach to it how much if if at all do you think that may have played in in ultimately sort of pushing you over the edge with all this lesnar stuff and and I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, WWE are by any means in a good place because they're not. And, I, you know, I, I underline that 50 times over. But um, curious as to just to get your thoughts on how much you think that. Uh, and let's I mean, let's broaden out as well. How much a specific fans uh, philosophy to to watching wrestling might impact whether or not they get sick of it. Well, 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a big question. I think that certainly the day in, day out, week in, week out for so many years, analytically looking at the product, when when everything was going smoothly or relatively smoothly to me, and, you know, not even smoothly. Let's 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 break this down sure. in a different way. I think for for me, part of the thing that I loved about analyzing pro wrestling for so many years and then doing it in a column and podcast form was I came to understand that there was a certain way that WWE did things Mm -hmm. and the better I understood it, then the more the little things that they did that I might not have agreed with really wouldn't bother me that much. So long as that there were these basic themes that were followed that had made them who they were then I, I was on board with that. I felt like there was a clear-cut philosophy that had, they had developed, and I understood that philosophy. And therefore, understanding that philosophy, I could I could pretty much stomach most of what they threw out there, with a couple of obvious exceptions. The, the last few years has been a case, in my opinion, where a lot of the things that they built their foundation on, they've basically torn down and replaced the things with things that don't make sense to me. Sure. And, and it wasn't until I stepped away from analyzing it, because when you're in the throes of it and you're just constantly, you know, it's hard to break that cycle of looking too deeply into it. And they've gotten to a point where they've kind of forced my hand. This is the way I looked at it is if I don't stop overanalyzing this product, which no longer makes sense to me, the, the some of the basic functions of it, which you and I can both agree, I know, on the part timer thing. Uh, that was that was a big foundational thing for me that didn't make sense because I'm so accustomed to okay Brett goes through the goes through the throes of the mid card he works his way up he becomes extremely popular the opening is there they put him in the main event spot he owns it he does great with it and for the next five years he's a top guy until things happen that force him out of the WWE. Well, that, that pattern and process is largely gone in the form that I used to know it as replaced by this constant need to, uh, basically eliminate anything that gets hot in the moment. He's always got this. And, and, and some of it, you know, we're talking about overanalyzing when you're online, you you constantly see these reasons why that you have posited in the past might in fact be WWE poking the bear from behind the scenes. And if that's the case, then there are times when creatively that works incredibly well. And then there are cases where if that's what's been going on for the last couple of years, then I feel like screaming expletives at them through the phone. The over and the over analytical part of it makes it hard to break out and just become a fan because i guess where i was at when i when i backed away from the podcast was just at a point essentially where i had to where i had to get away to preserve what was left of my fandom so i do think absolutely that if part of the question is is being that involved in the analytical part detrimental to a wrestling fan's pure joy for the for what made them a wrestling fan in the first place absolutely um it's tough, tough question. Big question. But. I'm going to throw another one at you now as well. Um, uh, so, because on on you know the the title of this show has been sports entertainment is dead. The idea behind it being that sports entertainment references, um, or I use the term in reference to 
just the the sort of the prototypical way that we've we've thought about and um, received pro wrestling for decades. You know, since at least since um, you know Hogan won the title in '84, maybe even before that. But certainly, you know that that kind of modernized, sort of more theatrical version of pro wrestling is is what it refers to. The idea that Vince came up with a way of doing things. I guess you've just kind of, in a way, been talking about it an established way of having done things for so long um that it's you know my belief doesn't really work anymore and i'm going to ask you now in that view so if you think of of sports entertainment as as you've just sort of termed it uh doc as a as a way a certain way of doing things does it really exist uh outside especially in this day and age where you know you can see the kind of the difference between wwe and a lot of indie things a lot of indie promotions in the way that sort of the product in nxt is different the way that the ring product has changed over recent years does sports entertainment exist outside of wwe i've always personally looked at sports entertainment as more of a label than a philosophy it wasn't really until your your writings got me thinking more of it as a philosophy that I started thinking of it that way. Mm. You know, I look at sports entertainment as Vince McMahon didn't want an association with pro wrestling semantically. So he decided I'm going to relabel it and reintroduce it to the public as something that in many ways is, I mean, it's the same basic thing, but I mean, presented if I could, in a different I, light. If I could just jump in very quickly, you, I think, yeah. you're, you, you know, you're bang on. It was obviously sort of just introduced as a euphemism and ironically a euphemism that's so obvious. Like you say, it doesn't actually accomplish what I think Vince thinks it accomplished. But, um, and I, you know, and, and just, it, I only want to say this in case there's people listening who, who think that I'm, that I'm under some impression that's not what it was. Obviously that's of course what it was introduced as, as you say, I've kind of taken it and used and, and adopted it as a way of, labeling i guess what you've just said really labeling the way that it that wrestling has been done for the last 25 30 years well i say i say all that to basically just segue into the my actual answer to the question that that you asked which is essentially i look at it it's just it's pro wrestling under a different name so okay it's a it's a style of pro wrestling i think that you know from a from a product standpoint you could kind of look at that in two different ways i think in some ways you have to look at it as what happens between the ropes and then what happens from the other perspective on what happens leading up to what happens between the ropes if that mouthful makes any sense so <laughs> you know I, like i've been recently watching a lot of new japan matches i have no idea what's going on like i have absolutely <laughs> no clue like i'm watching the g1 climax so i have this idea that okay well the winner of this gets a, gets to be in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom, their version of WrestleMania. So, okay, that makes sense to me. But outside of that, I have no idea who these people are. I have no idea who's supposed to be good and who's supposed to be bad. So I'm figuring that out all by just watching these matches. Which, and are, are you able to? And I think for the most part, I'm able to. I mean, if a guy kind of walks up and smugly, you know, taps you on the head like you're a child, then that's something that someone who's antagonizing you would do so i'm going to initially label him the antagonist but if then he turns around and slaps kids hands at ringside i'm going to think well maybe he's just maybe this guy's his friend and he's just toying around with him i have no idea <laughs> but i think you know the way that the the product that they have 
functions leading up to these matches. I really don't know that. Um, but from other shows I've watched in the past, I think most of the time you've got these basic storylines that all pro wrestling products follow. So does sports entertainment exist outside of WWE? Do you mean by that the philosophy, the the predominant way that WWE does things? <clears throat> yeah. Does so I, yeah, because you yeah because you you referenced earlier, you know that you were talking about one of the things that's fed into your decision to sort of take a step back from it all was because you no longer was able or this is what the impression I got. So I apologize if I misunderstood, but. Um, that you were that they no longer seemed to be doing those fundamental things that they'd already that they'd always done, so that you weren't able to look past the little things anymore because none of it seemed to make much sense anymore. So that, and, that, and that WWE sense. way of doing things, I guess. Yeah, I guess I think uh, in terms of the way that WWE does things right now, I no, I don't think that exists outside of WWE. I don't think that exists in any entertainment sphere frankly i mean i can't it's such a strange thing going on in their company it's someone described it to me recently as one of those tv shows that just keeps going on and on and on and on and on and and just no one has the no one has the balls to just say this this show sucks now even though people still kind of watch it we should cancel it because it's terrible um so I, i don't know it's that's that's a that's a great question. It is a great question. Uh, well, he says. Um, but the reason why I say that is because, especially what you were just saying about New Japan, you know, a guy, uh, you know, sort of uh, smugly pats someone on the head, you'd think that they would be an antagonistic, but then if they're, you know, slapping the hands of fans, then maybe they're not. I mean, that sort of feeds into ideas that have been around really since Austin changed the game, uh, and, and good guys were no longer really you know, good guys anymore, good guys acted like bad guys, and, and bad guys sometimes ended up bad guys because they were trying to act too much like a, a good guy, you know, and that's just an example, but if 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 it doesn't exist outside of WWE, and WWE aren't doing it anymore, uh, then it strikes me that sports entertainment must be dead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think that if I can counter for just sure. a second with, with a Go thought, ahead. I mean, think about it this way, like the performance art theory. I love it because as a fan who maybe doesn't quite, doesn't really know what the hell WWE is trying to do mm. anymore. Um, if the philosophy that they're using no longer makes sense, then in order to preserve your love of professional wrestling, then the performance art theory is perfect because you basically just take whatever they're doing and you just shape it to fit the way you see it. And, and maybe that's a great way to do it all the time. But my question would, for you would be, is don't you think that that's something that even though we can do it, we shouldn't always have to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never – the thing is I've, I've never contended, or at least I hope I've never contended, um, that WWE have a right to put out a shoddy product or that they have – uh, a right to rely on us to do the heavy lifting creatively you know like if they were i doubt they're even aware of, of my book or anything but let's just pretend that they are for a second in a hypothetical universe uh and they sort of went oh, okay well we don't need to bother then like of course that's not okay and of course they have to put their best foot forward and of course they have to try and create an engaging product and a creative product where in an ideal universe we wouldn't have to do that heavy lifting. I guess there's a there's a, and maybe it speaks to my personality, but there's a, a an inherent cynicism 
to the book that I put out, which is if they're not going to give us anything worthwhile, um, then you know there's nothing stopping you getting something worthwhile from it all the same. But the trick, and this is what I've always said to people, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, just before um, WrestleMania 31 and SummerSlam 2015, I did a couple of columns that uh, presented an alternative view of sort of at that point what was the last eight years that went all the way back to 2007 and pulled together things that seemed utterly unrelated from, you know, the conclusion to the 2007 Royal Rumble, for example, to, uh, you know, the Evolution Shield feud, all manner of different things uh, to demonstrate how easy it is to ultimately take what WWE put out and make it make sense. So my contention has always been that what WWE put out actually has a lot of value to it. It's just they don't seem capable of being able to understand what val- what val where the value lies and how to, to draw it out because they're too obsessed with this uh, sort of... Um, you remember like the, the game show Wheel of Fortune where you span the wheel and there was like different different categories on the wheel and stuff and, like, you know, raw roulette, that kind of thing. It's like they've got a wheel and they spin it around and whatever generic sports entertainment, let's use that phrase, or, or pro wrestling storyline or feud or concept it lands on, that's the story that we're going to apply to this particular feud this year. And that goes to the, that, that applies to the pre-shows as well. I always watch the pay-per-view pre-shows, but one of the reasons why I do alternative ones here on Sports Entertainment is Dead now is because I sit and I watch these pre-shows and it's the same people saying the same lines uh, about the same concepts, Just you're just changing the players in the feud each and every time. And it is mind-numbingly uh, generic and, and completely lacks any creative forethought. What I always tell people is that I don't, you know, I don't just muster things out of thin air. I just take what they present on TV and, and, and try and figure out, you know, find the way that makes sense and then go, okay, well, that must be what it means. And, and ultimately that means you are doing a lot of the heavy lifting yourself, but ultimately, you know, it's not like I'm writing anything for them. I'm just I'm just trying to interpret and, and join the dots up of what they present. And the irony is, a lot of the time, they can stumble into something that's actually quite a compelling story um, with, without even knowing that it's that it's sat there. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, we've just, on Sports Entertainment's Dead, I think you may have listened to them, uh, Doc, but I've had Mav on for the last three weeks, and, and he and I have gone through the entire history between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins from day one. And, uh, you know, that's a curious, uh, a curious case of a situation in which WWE actually seemed to have consciously acknowledged the continuity every time they've they've revisited that, that feud in a way that's very uncharacteristic for them in this day and age but even then you you can you can start burrowing into the details even more in a way that they may not have always anticipated so ultimately it comes down to that line that i use in 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 101 wwe matches to see before you die line i've used in many columns and said here on the show which is that uh you know authorial intent so the intent of the author is secondary always to artistic achievement it's like when you're in school and you do an english lit class and there's always that kid that goes well but sir maybe the writer never intended that nine times out of ten you're almost certain they didn't but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that thing um so it's 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 about it's not necessarily about sort of uh giving ww a free pass to put out a crap product as much as it is sort of a cynical recognition of the situation we're in uh but i mean my Obviously, my, my you know the performance art theory that I've put forward and and um, champion to this day is is all about trying to shift our focus away from the kind of um, 
and I use this word not in a not in a derogatory sense, just as a, a pragmatic one, um, from a formulaic way of thinking about, you know, this is how wrestling has to be done, to simply saying, you know, let's just break loose and treat it like we would we would any other TV show. I mean, I saw recently actually you, you just um, were rewatching some of the build to the Ambrose Rollins match, I believe, and I think you referenced some of the stuff that Mav and I had said on on this show. I did, yeah. I think Ambrose and Rollins is actually an interesting sort of microcosm of our of our conversation sure. here. Yeah. And this and, and there's one thing, like I agree and here's if I sound I feel like I'm consciously aware of my being somewhat all over the place with my responses to your no, questions. No, because you know, frankly, uh, I'm in that I'm in a mode of my fandom, and I think a lot of people are right now, uh, especially those who have reached the place that I have. And I've watched people reach the place that I have for the better part of a decade before I actually personally reached it. Uh, and that's a place where you don't really know how you want your fandom to be mm. anymore in, in the sense that like I've for years I, I posited this thought that maybe we should just all watch pay-per-views and just not watch the TVs because the TVs are so bland and generic. They do a much better job setting the stage for the story they're trying to tell with the pre-pay-per-view video package. Absolutely. And and I've have actually been doing that lately. And I was sitting there thinking while you were talking about Ambrose and and Rollins a quick aside. Like I was sitting there thinking if I had not seen anything Daniel Bryan has had to say over the last couple of months or since he made his turn and I just watched the trilogy of matches that you were talking about being so good on your show last week, mm-hmm. I would know exactly what was going on. I, I wouldn't know any of the uh, – I mean, I might not be able to, to establish at, that extra hype for it with all of Daniel Bryan, what I think have been some really engaging – promos over the last few weeks but if i just watched those matches i would have seen daniel bryan tap out then daniel bryan turn heel which i could then associate with the fact that he was so mad that he tapped out and then the last match just being the evolution of both of those i think watching ambrose and rollins from the perspective of just watching the promo video like i did a couple of nights ago when i revisited that match for the second time I felt like, okay, a lot of this, a lot of the old way of thinking where you watch the TVs leading up to the pay-per-view match, this match is a perfect example of why you shouldn't necessarily feel the need to watch every week and why your fandom might be much better served by just kind of going with the flow, watching it on your own time, which all of us now have the ability to do. We can watch this stuff Whenever we want, there's no need to necessarily watch it live anymore. There's no reason, especially to watch the TVs live, but not even the pay-per-views. Like you can catch the pay-per-view the next day, watch it in bits and pieces. I felt like I strictly adhered to this sporting event type mindset toward it for years, which is the night it comes, the night it's out, I have to watch it then, or I'm not going to get the same kind of experience. And that's true. I don't get the same kind of experience, but I might have stumbled across a better one because Ambrose and Rollins was so much better to me by just watching what they intended to tell the story they intended to tell, which was very well set up by the video package. And then bam, here's Ambrose and Rollins having their match and telling a story, which I felt like did a very good job of backing up what the hype video suggested it should be. My question to you though, going back to the, the sports entertainment type philosophy, because here's one thing that I think that 
if you take all of the different things that shape how I view sports entertainment or how I view, let's just say sports entertainment is a euphemism for the WWE style of professional wrestling. Yeah. One thing that I've always felt was a big factor that you and you and Maverick especially have always challenged me on. Mm. But I think really is it's it's kind of a it's there's something there that we can dissect a little bit because it's such a, a key way that I think people receive pro wrestling is the crowd response. Mm-hmm. Like I would say crowd response is a big part of the success of a WWE style pro wrestling match. It's not a it's not the only part. It's not it's it's one of let's call it eight things that I would put into rating a wrestling match if I was going to do it in a way that I was going to make a, a historical comparison to some other match with. I think that Ambrose and Rollins matches historically, even their best work has often suffered from the fact that the crowd on the night of wasn't as invested in what they were doing as they were in one of the more popularly st- wrestled styles from, you know, some other, like the, the great ladder match that you guys love Ambrose and Rollins the, sto- the show was stolen, according to the vast majority of people, by the Cena hmm. and Owens match. And then this same type of thing here at TLC, like Ambrose and Rollins, if you go back and watch it, I absolutely agree with what you asserted last week, that on second watch, it's a heck of a lot better. Like, you barely even hear the fact that there was a boring chant. You barely even notice the fact that Renee and Corey are jawing at each other for the vast majority of the runtime. You just see what they're doing. And it's actually quite good. It's not the best thing they've ever done, but it's certainly not bad. And it's actually bordering on great, in my opinion. But that being said, there is no mistaking that the crowd is not as interested in that match as they were the match after it and before it. And that's, I think that's something from a sports entertainment perspective that you have to reconcile. It doesn't matter from the performance art point of view. It, it doesn't matter at all, mm. which might be a good thing. But it does matter from the sports entertainment perspective because from the sports entertainment perspective, part of the goal of the pro wrestling match is to engage the audience. Absolutely, and, it, yeah. and it absolutely just enhances the experience when the crowd's going nuts. If the crowd went nuts the entire time, the same the way that they did for the matches that sandwiched Ambrose and Rollins at TLC, I don't think anyone would have had the same issues. I don't think you would have seen people nitpicking it. I don't think you would have had people saying they should have had a fight instead of the match that they had. I don't think you would have seen as many complaints about Graves and, and, and Renee Young because people wouldn't have been paying attention to what they were saying. They would have been paying attention to the, the crowd going back and forth and all that usual crowd engagement type stuff. So my question for you is, if we're going to say sports entertainment is dead, given the fact that crowd response is still such an important sports entertainment sort of philosophical aspect in terms of not just what happens when you're watching the match, but that's a big part. I think more often than not popular reception to a match is influenced by how popular it was with the live audience. How do we reconcile that? If we're going to say sports entertainment is dead and switch over to more of a performance art philosophy. How do we, uh, sorry, doc, how do we reconcile well, if you forget the question. Just forget the question okay. in response to all that. Just okay. what's your response to all that when we're talking about comparing the philosophies? Okay, well, um, 
I think it's 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 such a complex issue uh, now in a way that it wasn't or wouldn't have been. I think even as recently as well, maybe maybe ten years ago, but certainly you know fifteen twenty years ago, not quite so much, because. And it's difficult to get into this conversation without immediately sounding like you're attacking other wrestling fans for the way that they sort of, um, you know, behave and carry themselves at wrestling shows. So I want to say up front that that's categorically not what I'm doing. Um, but from the from the interest of providing a, a dispassionate um, critique of, of, the, of the culture in wrestling today, particularly, and particularly when it comes to WWE, I think there's plenty enough empirical evidence to demonstrate that a lot of fan behavior uh, is is more willful than it's ever been. I mean, there's no situation in which, to take an example, a wrestling fan just coincidentally happens to have a beach ball in his bag at a wrestling show in a city, a landlocked city, other than the fact he's brought a beach ball, or he or she's brought a beach ball to a wrestling show, which would seem to intimate the only... Uh, intention you had in doing that was to start throwing a beach ball around at some point in the show which demonstrates that there is a part of that show you either don't want to watch or aren't interested in you brought something to entertain yourself with that's just a a crude example that i want to give to demonstrate that i think a lot of fans and i think a lot of it is shaped by interestingly enough um the 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 quality or lack thereof on television because obviously ultimately my opinion is that all TV is is you know trailer. You get the odd TV match that matters and that is important, but mo- nine times out of ten, it's just a trailer for the pay-per-view match, right? Um, because that's essentially what contributes to the pre-match hype package, which is in itself a trailer that contextualizes the match that then follows. Um, and because I think a lot of fans are, often aren't engaged by that, they have a tendency to turn up with the willful intention of. Uh, not caring about something, even if they're not necessarily conscious of that. They've checked out before it even starts. That's one thing. But then the the, the other thing is, uh, you know, you, you've got to think about in-ring styles, and you, you kind of touched on this when you were talking there, Doc, um, and what's fashionable and what's not fashionable. And the sad, tru- the, the sad truth, in my opinion, um, is that, I mean, if you were to if you were to sort of go back, uh, when did let's see when did NXT start? It started properly in 2012, didn't it? So um, yes. If if you were to go back to sort of around 2011, 2012, and were to look at the main roster at that point, WWE barely even acknowledged that other promotions existed in the world, let alone hyped up what people had achieved elsewhere in the company. And I think that fans have a tendency to forget that that was, you know, as recently as 2011, 2012, that was very much the thing. You know, WWE existed, nothing else did. And what's happened with NXT, as it's particularly, as it's grown more and more popular and it's become, it's attracted more and more indie talent, it's tapped into that resource a lot more and it's developed as a promotion and as a developmental system, that culture has shifted massively. I mean, I remember when Jushin Thunder Liger turned up to wrestle Tyler Breeze uh, and that was a big deal because they'd, they'd, they'd acknowledged that there were wrestlers and other promotions that weren't WWE and he was coming in for a one-off. And then you saw that translate into the Cruiserweight Classic, you saw it translate into the Mae Young Classics, 
um, you know, where you had Kota Ibushi turn up to wrestle specifically in that tournament, and then we never saw him again in WWE. There's been a huge culture shift within the company. And with that, because you've had more indie talent come in and stuff, you've had um, a larger influence um, of that style, of that more is more style, as I refer to it, um, that in turn, I think, is heavily influenced by the kind of puro wrestling you get over in Japan. Um, which again, I would, from what I've seen, I would categorize as sort of, you know, more is more and lay it on thick. Uh, and I think that that in turn is then fed into the main roster. And I think as this process has gone along, the kind of slow burn old school storytelling that Dean Ambrose in particular favors in, in his matches, um, has really become very unfashionable. And I think, um, I don't want to say too demanding because that sounds like I'm insulting the audience, but it's it's almost like the audience, generally speaking, uh, no longer is able to quite appreciate the same kind of slow burn uh, storytelling as perhaps they might have done in, say, the mid-1990s. I mean, you and I have just done a top 50 matches of the new gen era series. And, and you know, that uh, Dean Ambrose's ring style today would fit in like a glove uh, in the mid-1990s because that's what's heavily influenced him. One of the things that I rate Seth Rollins so much for is because I think he's maybe one of, if not the only guy, who's managed to find a way to balance slow burn storytelling with that kind of more high-octane style of today. And so I think as a result, you're not going to get the same kind of response from Ambrose-Rollins matches because they aren't wrestled, or any Ambrose match for that matter, for the most part, because they aren't wrestled in a style that's deemed fashionable today, which is, you know, um, like I said, very more is more. That's just two factors. I mean, I think there are others in play, but what I'm trying to drive at here is that I don't think the day and age was absolutely that if a match was was uh, good it would win the crowd over because the crowd were there with the sole intention of being an audience with the sole intention of of watching the match and the story unfold uh, you know in a style that was fashionable and so you go back I mean in the process of researching that that new gen series there were there were I, I don't know whether you found this or not, but certainly when I've been researching my next book, which is going to be about the new gen, there are matches like I think about, it didn't come up in the series, but Lex Luger versus Tatanka on, on Monday Night Raw, that today would barely get so much as a, a recognized response from the crowd. Uh, but had in the mid-1990s, in 1995, because it took place just before WrestleMania 11, had the crowd absolutely going berserk over it, um, because it was a, it was a different kind of culture. I think there are so many factors now that influence crowd response and crowd behavior uh, that it becomes very, very difficult to simply say, you know, if the match is a great match, the crowd is going to respond, uh, you know, is going to respond in a way that's, that's positive and that influences it. And so I think what you've got is this weird situation where actually you could have the best wrestled match in history uh, and the crowd depending on other factors, wouldn't necessarily care. But that doesn't mean that the art form, the execution of the art form in the ring, should be deemed any less effective or any less good. Maybe effective is the right word. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I dare say that there are, there are Ambrose matches that, and, I, and again, I don't want to use the term because I don't want to sound like I'm speaking down to people, but if, if Ambrose matches were what I would deem to be dumbed down a little bit, if they, were, if they were turned more into the false finish heavy style that's popular today, they'd absolutely get the same response. I think. And so it, it becomes hard to say from, from my perspective, it becomes hard to justify saying, you know, if, if, if it's a great match, then the crowd will respond positively or alternatively, just because the crowd's responding positively, it's a great match compared to these other matches where they didn't respond quite so positively, because I think there are, there are too many mitigating factors 
in play. One of which, as I said earlier, is the TV build, which you've just said earlier on in the show, Doc, that you, you've kind of been, been skipping and just watching the pay-per-view matches, which is a curious thing to me because I believe that that's one of the factors in, in the formula you put forward in, in the greatest matches and rivalries, is that the build should play a part in that, and I wonder whether you feel that's still the case, given the experience you've had over the last couple of months. Ah, that's a question to be answered uh, more thoroughly once I figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But um, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you're right. I mean, that's I think that's that's partly what what I what I like about the formula I created to categorize and rank and file in that book was that it points out that all of these things are factors. That, yeah. You know, what happens in the ring can be absolutely outstanding, and the crowd can be fairly quiet by comparison to a match that may not be as outstanding. So you put all that together in a blender, you look at things like the fact that, you know, if the TV build is great, or at least, like, I wouldn't call... I did go back. I've watched the TV builds for Brian and Styles, Ambrose and Rollins, and Becky Lynch and Charlotte oh. Flair a couple uh, not too terribly long ago too. I wouldn't call what was going on between Charlotte and Becky, for instance, as as crazy as it made the crowds. I wouldn't call it, you know, cr- it, creatively. It didn't knock my socks off by any means, oh. especially by comparison to things that have happened in the past that just were far better executed from a week-to-week standpoint. But it was good, and I thought it was, quite frankly, because it was so engaging on a different emotional level that, you know, I would, if I was to apply my my classic formula to the best and brightest matches and rivalries of 2018, then I would put that right up there at the top and give that high marks for what it was able to achieve in terms of, um, you know, just, you know, Anytime someone like Becky gets as hot as she's gotten, there's some decent stuff, at least better than average stuff going on with what they're giving her the opportunity to do and what she's being able to say. And um, so I like that about the the formula I created is it's always been that way for me when it comes to either analyzing matches or analyzing wrestlers. It's just coming up with a system that breaks everything down and doesn't overweight one thing over another, but tries to look at all these different factors as relative equals. And and that's what shapes, because if you get something that, that connects on all levels, then that's when you get into the five star kind of territory to use that label is, is it's, you can't, it can't just be about what happens in the ring. It can't just be about what happened before the bell rang. It can't be, just about what the crowd says in response to it. It's It's got to be all those things. Okay, well, I mean, that's a nice segue there. Um, I'm going to take us to a quick advert break, and then when we come back, we'll pick that up, and we'll get to the question that I wanted to initially pose to Doc as a platform for us to carry on this discussion, which we'll do in just a few short moments. Okay, welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for sticking with me. I hope you're enjoying it so far. Um, Doc, before we went to the advert break there, you started talking about, um, you know, what goes into a five-star match. Now, the, the, the question um, that I wanted to pose to you and the point of contention that uh, I've, I've argued with you um, about on uh, social media many times before to the shock of absolutely nobody who follows me on social media or, or my columns or podcasts, 
will be, has Seth Rollins, my boy, wrestled a five-star match yet in his career? Because I don't... Well, well, first of all, I mean, let's talk about the whole star rating thing. I mean, it's not a system that I believe in, um, concise, to put it concisely, because I don't think... Uh, and appreciating that this is what you're, the sort of the formula you were talking about is designed to do, I don't think that star ratings are very good at accommodating all of the nuanced accomplishments that a piece of art like a wrestling match might have in its favour. Um, from a from a very sort of practical perspective, I think if if you if you start talking about star ratings, it encourages people to make snap judgments, and it encourages people to try and um, to try and, and boil, I mean, wrestling matches are complex things. Any wrestling match is a complex thing. Uh, and as a f- passionate believer that pro wrestling is out and out an art form, um, I hate to see it boiled down into something uh, quite literally formulaic. You know, that there's a formula behind it is not something that I that I believe in. But I wonder if, if uh, and in fact, actually recently, I, um, I was talking on social media about the, the year that AJ Styles has had this year and, and expressed my confusion as to why someone would say he would be WWE's Wrestler of the Year this year. And one of the things that our friend Rich Latter from One Nation Radio immediately pointed out to me was a system of star ratings. And I was like, dude, I'm the last person on earth that that's going to convince. Um, but you're very much the, the polar opposite. And I wonder if you if you want to set your sort of stall out on that front a little bit. Sure. I, and I think that I think in, in large part about a, a lot of what you said that you're spot on. I think that it does generally tend to and I think, you know, Meltzer ratings are a good example of this. They tend to be, you know, in the moment. They tend to be uh, snap judgments made about something seen one time. One yeah. time. And I am I am very much of the opinion that you cannot judge a wrestling match only by the one time it's been seen that that is, you know, you, you just, you can't, how can you, it's like watching a movie. It's like, okay, I see it for the first time. I have no idea what's going to happen, but if I'm going to judge it as an art form, then that's where we can get analytical about it. And that's basically been my stance about, especially when it comes to star rating matches that, um, you know, star ratings, aren't a huge factor in my overall formula just in it, but they are in the sense sure. that I use that scale. Like yeah. I've used that scale to rate matches in snap judgments for so long and, and keep a running list that when it came to the historical analysis that went into the greatest matches and rivalries of the WrestleMania era, one to five was just the, it was basically just the, the, the the quantifier the 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 quantifiable aspect of it just using a one to five scale made sense because it's wrestling um so i what i like about it and what i think that um and what i what i've always thought you might appreciate about it was that it was it it did take into account all of these different aspects and and judge them on that five-star scale granted but it's looking at psychology it's looking at execution it's looking at the effectiveness of the climax it's looking at you know the 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 pieces of the the way the you know call them plot twists call them near falls near falls being a form of plot twist you know put that all into a blender and see what comes out um so i like that because and and, and just for future reference 
for for me, I, I long since gave up trying to label a match that wasn't very good. It's like, who cares about matches that's not very good? I'm never going to watch that again. Who cares about things that are, you know, quote unquote, two star, which means for, for future reference, if anyone out there who's listening is confused about what star ratings mean, I don't know how Meltzer does it because now he's got like a 75 star scale. But um, <laughs> just so for, for how I use it personally, this is the way I break it down with qualitative labels. Three star means it's good. Three and a quarter star means it's definitively good. No question about it. Three and a half star means it's really good. Three and three quarter stars means it's really good bordering on great. Four star is great. Four and a quarter, definitively great. Four and a half, bordering on all time great if not outright all-time great, four and three-quarters being almost as good as any match you've ever seen, and then five-star being the label for the one of the best matches ever. You know, point blank, it doesn't get any if much better than that. So I, I, I've, always, I've always liked that uh, from that perspective, and, and my philosophy personally has been to, okay, what makes a five-star match? And let's throw all that into a blender and see what it spits out. And and that was the basis for for the second book. Essentially, is you know you put all those different factors in there and and see and, and see how see what the scores are to try to try to quantitate it. And you know, I mean, it's it's a fundamentally sound theory. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it. I guess the reason why I remain sort of largely unconvinced is just that that overriding opinion I have that. Uh, you know, sports entertainment doesn't doesn't fit the bill anymore. Which I mean, in, incidentally, that's not to say it never did, uh, and and I feel like I need to clarify that. I mean, my 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 argument, my overriding argument, is that at some stage, and I I've never really thought about where I would draw the line in the sand because I don't think ultimately that that's too important. But at some stage, the way the world changed around wrestling, uh, you know the onset of the internet and social media and just the way that we live our day-to-day lives has changed so massively and so fast over the last 20 years um that that you know that sports entertainment just that that way of doing it and that way of thinking about it just stop being able to work because you know we now live in an age where wrestling fans openly use uh you know wrestling jargon uh, and there's no guarantee that we use it the right way. We can guess probably that we do, but you know, we ultimately, if you've never been a wrestler, if you never worked in the industry, you don't know if you're using it the right way. Um, but we still use it. I mean, you know, we, we're living in an age where people talk about babyface turns and heel turns when crowds boo babyfaces and cheer heels. Uh, in which case, the meanings of those terms are left completely defunct. Because those terms were defined by largely by the way audiences reacted to characters. Because if you're a bad guy, you get booed. You're a good guy, you get cheered. So if if that's completely flipped on its head, how can those terms be utilized in an effective way anymore? And in an age where the verbiage uh, is so much in flux, and our understanding of what uh, you know aspects of pro wrestling mean is so much in flux, then how can we consistently be able to go across the board and and just you know reasonably assume everybody means the same thing when they're referring to to a certain idea and i guess one of the things that i try to 
encourage people through pre preaching the performance art thing is to just forget about the rules and regulations and the old terms and all that sort of stuff and just boil it down to something much more simple which is your you know i mean how many times do we hear wwe say um we're storytellers uh, and you wouldn't think it because they're incredibly ineffective storytellers because the <laughs> the 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 the, the the rules of good storytelling, I've said this till I'm blue in the face on this show, on the right side of the pond, everywhere. The rules of good storytelling are universal across mediums. It doesn't matter whether you're writing a book, a screenplay for a film, you know, doing a, do, writing a pro wrestling feud. Good storytelling is, is, is universal and it doesn't matter what you want to mask it with. Um, and as a result, there's no reason why we can't talk about pro wrestling the same way we talk about other, other mediums. And I guess that's, that's why I remain cynical to a to a you know outside of the sort of the minutiae of what i was saying earlier about it encouraging snap judgments all that sort of stuff um it's just if someone turns around to me even someone like yourself chad who um who has you know very extensively and informatively explained the theory and the 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 function behind each of not just the formula but each aspect of the formula as well in, in a way in a as well in a way that is very explicit um I guess I just I just feel like I can't be confident that you telling me you know that's three three and a half stars is is a statement of value to me because uh, you know my idea of what is I, I apologize because I you rattled through those definitions I can't quite remember them but to me what is a, a borderline great match could mean something completely different to what you believe a, a borderline great match is even though I now know what you think a borderline great match is. Sure. I hope that made sense. <laughs> it did make sense. And I guess my, my, my quick response to it would be my, the formula I've created doesn't necessarily mean that you and I have to agree on all aspects. But what it sure. does do is it gives us a format by which if you and I both sat down and we agreed, all right, these are 10 very good to great wrestling matches that – you know, well, just let's just say someone gave us in a random panel, and maybe this would be fun to do. Someone listing, you know, send one of both of us a tweet at the doc lop at lop plan, and just give us ten wrestling matches, ten like wrestling it. matches, and we'll take them and we'll try to use my formula that I've created, and let's see what we come up with. Because because that was the idea. It was like, all right, right now everyone says that's a five-star match. Okay, well, what shapes the opinion that that's a five-star match? I would imagine, and this, to an extent, this is being done on cagematch.net, I think, where people are given the option to vote. And, you know, you've got matches that I think most people would think of right offhand as being great. You go on there, and they're they're given, you know, eight out of ten, nine out of ten ratings. Like, okay, generally speaking, people agree that that's, that's a great match. So the thought process is just simply... All right. Well, if we're going to judge this, let's all use these criteria. Let's 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 break down and say, all right. Well, every great match, or you know, generally speaking, these are the things that shape wrestling greatness. Uh, how well executed was it? How dramatic was it? How um, you know how 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 well did they use psychology? Like if someone gets their knee worked over for the entire match and then totally ignores it, then that's going to get negative marks for the psychology department because that doesn't really make sense. If someone gets their knee worked over, looking at you, Shinsuke Nakamura, for you know, you know, dozens of minutes, and then as soon as it's time to make a comeback, then it's like, oh, the, the knee was never worked over, which is a very Japan thing, it seems, from my limited viewing. It's like, okay, you know, this guy can't move. 
he's screaming. He's, oh my God, I can't get out of this hold. And then as soon as he starts making his comeback, it's like, oh, I've got the Hulk energy in me and I'm going to rip you apart and completely ignore this. You know, stylistically, I think that this would have to apply just to the North American style of wrestling. But I don't think it would extend out. It wasn't designed to extend out to a, a New Japan type style. And this is actually the perfect time for this book to be written because it's about to get really hard to keep going with this formula because of some of the inherent New Japan type influences on the WWE product. And what's, I mean, what's, if I could just jump in one second, what's, sure. what's really interesting about that is obviously Dave, Dave Meltzer is, is, I would think at this point, pretty infamous for, um, you know, his love for, uh, you know, that Japanese style. And it's, it's, I mean, you, you look at his listings of five-star matches and the fact that he is of the opinion that WWE didn't put forward a single five-star quote-unquote match between 1997 and 2011 to me automatically just straight away says well that's pish yeah uh, and and the fact that now we've had however many in in the span of like what was was it every uh, gargano champa match he rated as as five i know he rated the champ the gargano uh, almas match as five stars and i think the first gargano champa match as five star because of exactly what you said because they they've shown a greater influence of that Japanese style where Gargano gets his head smashed to bits for 30 minutes straight and then is absolutely fine after the end of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and yeah, I think that, that there, there's definitely some, um, you know, some interesting conversation we could have about Meltzer ratings. Um, hmm. But, you know, just kind of sticking with the, the concept um, referenced a few minutes ago, it's basically, it's pretty simple. It's what I want to do is I think that we should, I think that we as analytical thinkers about pro wrestling should be able to have more of a conversation than just that's five stars yeah. or that's four stars. Well, why is it five stars? Why is it four stars? And I think that we could tangibly put together a list of qualities that we all would agree, or at least generally agree, are most important and then I would imagine, I, honest to God, I would imagine that if you and I sat down and people sent us 10 matches, it wouldn't surprise me if our rankings were totally different. There might be a couple of differences, but I think I think it would be very surprising if my 10th best match rated as your first best. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think no, it would be far more don't... likely that you and I would be maybe one or two places off for the vast majority of that list by using that formula. And that that's the goal, because it's like, I use the example, I know you're not a big fan of, of sports, but I use the, the example of, of how rankings are determined in sports here in the U.S. and college sports particularly. It's, they, they take a bunch of different criteria that, they are, that are the agreed upon criteria and they come up with their lists. And there's some nuance there, but for the most part, it tends to be fairly uniform that this is, you know, this is the rankings and we agree upon these rankings. And then they're usually rankings that, the masses can at least somewhat agreeably within a space or two can, can agree on too. So, and then that was the goal. Cause I've always felt like if we're going to rate pro wrestling matches, then we're not doing it in a way we're not doing it as well as we could. And I think it's fun to do it and actually have debates about, about it. But I think if we're going to, you know, evolve the way that we look at pro wrestling in part, we have to be, we have to recognize what the what the various different points are like if 
the, the, that whole idea came from the first book that I wrote, ranking the greatest wrestlers. It's like some people say Steve Austin's the greatest all time. And then someone in the next beat will say, well, Shawn Michaels is the greatest of all time. Well, I think, you know, you look at that, you look at that concept. It's like, well, okay, well maybe Shawn Michaels is the best of all time. But what, when some people say Shawn Michaels is the greatest, they're not talking about the same set of reasons that Steve Austin would be labeled the greatest recognizing those differences, pointing them out and actually breaking it down. It's like, okay, well, why would people say Shawn Michaels is? Why would people say Steve Austin is? Why would people say Hulk Hogan is? Put all that into a blender and what do you get? You get a formula that can actually produce a result that isn't so based on one thing or the other, but all of those things together. I mean, we both know that, that uh, you know, both those people are wrong anyway because Seth Rollins is the greatest of all time. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, I sit here in my in my newly purchased Seth Rollins hoodie, which is the <laughs> piece of pro wrestling merchandise I've bought for myself fantastic. like that and actually worn in about 20 years. So getting back to my pure fandom, I'm sitting here in my burn it down hoodie, zip up sweatshirt. Fantastic. You're a man of good taste. I've always said that. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, and in in the in the rush to to praise Seth Rollins, I've totally forgotten what my next uh, what my next point was going to be. Um, excuse me. Okay, well, I mean, ultimately, we you know let's get to. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I tell you what, let's let's put your theory to the test then. Let's if if you're up for it. Um, not now. Fair enough. But if if people listening to the show want to throw ten rest any ten random wrestling matches at you and I, let's make uh, it both. WWE. Yeah, just make it WWE, absolutely um, proper and and, and, and sp- you know good span across time as well. Not all, it's not sort of ten matches within three years of each other. You know, give us give us ten matches from across the decades. Any random ten matches from WWE across the decades. We'll sit down and we'll watch them both. Doc, if you want to come back on the show at some point in the future when we've done that, and we can we can put your theory to the test, uh, and we'll do that with your formula from, and I will stick very rigidly to your formula as you spell it out in your book, The Greatest Rivalries and Matches of the WrestleMania Era. And then watch the same 10 matches again, totally forgetting your... Um, your your formula and just watching them for the small things and the the from the you know from a performance art perspective instead an interpretive perspective and we'll see you know we'll see what happens on the back of that in terms of 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 listing them or ranking them sounds like fun excellent so you're up for that then you will come back on the show in the future and we'll do that absolutely marvelous so there you go folks you can tweet doc at doc lop i think or is it at the doc lop at the doc at the doc lop and you can tweet myself at LOP plan, 10 matches, random 10 matches from WWE across the decades, and we'll put that theory to the test. In the meantime, though, we've, we've passed the hour mark. Uh, we've still got a little, little ways to go. We've not even gotten to the question that I was initially going to pose to kick us off here, uh, which is, as I said earlier, has Seth Rollins wrestled a five-star match? Doc, when I was uh, sort of uh, giving you a brief on what the sort of rundown of what the show was going to be about, a little bit about, and how it's going to be structured today... I gave you uh, three matches in particular that if I were into star ratings, uh, which I'm not, but if I were to do star ratings, would be three Seth Rollins matches that I would give uh, five stars to. 
the first of those three was the triple threat match at the 2015 Royal Rumble between him, Brock Lesnar, and John Cena for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. Which, incidentally, folks, is a match that's currently going on in a series that Doc is posting on LordsOfPain.net and is going on in, lo- in our columns forum as well, where we're um, voting in a tournament bracket for the greatest Royal Rumble match of all time, and that remains one of the, the contenders at this point as we enter the second round. Um, so that's one. The second was the ladder match with uh, Dean Ambrose, again for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship in 2015. And the third was uh, the uh, match against Triple H at WrestleMania 33, which is a match that has a, a you know a huge uh, personal meaning to me, among uh, many other reasons. Um, let's take them one by one over the course of the next next hour or so. Um, and if we if we run short on time, there's a couple of other sort of backups that I can throw at you. But before we get into those, what I wanted to do first of all was to throw a, a comparison at you and to bring up another aspect of this formula that you um, use in uh, your book, uh, which specifically is time. Because this is, you know, we talked about crowd reaction has been a point of contention between us in the past. Time is is another one that Mav and I in particular, I think, have, have picked up in, in debates with you uh, through the years. Um, in the sense that it's... And I... You know, I'll let you sort of explain your, your perspective in a few minutes because I don't put words in your mouth. But it's it remains my uh, contention that, uh, you know, you can tell as fantastic or as five-star worthy, quote-unquote, a, a story in 10 minutes as you could in 25 minutes. And the comparison that I'll throw at you is if you think about the uh, match we both wrote about in the top 50 New Gen Matches series, uh, the famous Monday Night Raw match between Bret Hart and the 1-2-3 Kid for the WWF Championship. And then you think about the 2015 Monday Night Raw match Seth Rollins had with Neville for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. Those two stories are very, very, very comparable. And I would contend, excuse me, <clears throat> that actually Seth and Neville achieved the exact same uh, ends as Brett versus Brett and the Kid did, but in a fraction of of the same time, which I would say proves my point. But obviously, a lot of people don't talk about that Rollins Neville match pretty much at all at this point. Whereas the the Brett Hart Kid match lives in lives in infamy, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that particular point before we delve into this discussion full on. Sure. I think the main reason is because at the time, Bret Hart and one, two, three kid wrestled a great match at a time where having great matches on TV of that caliber was just not a regular thing yet. Whereas Seth Rollins versus Neville, as good as it was, and I would argue it's it's one of the best TV matches that we've seen in, in, in a number of years, really. I mean, I would put it right up there in terms of this decade's top 20 TV matches. I would probably have that on it, but there are so many TV matches that are comparable to it. And just they're maybe not in the story told, because I think that's what separates Neville versus Rollins, but there's just such a volume of great matches. It's harder for, it's harder for one great match to stand out amongst the pack in this day and age. Do you think that, but do you think that, um, generally fans are, um, less likely to love a shorter match than they are a longer match in, in this day and age. I think it was, yeah, it might have even been you who once pointed out to me that like before 
Sean and The Undertaker wrestled at WrestleMania 25. There were X number of, of 30-minute matches at WrestleMania. And then after they'd wrestled at WrestleMania 35, that, like, jumped up to some ridiculous number. I can't remember what the exact stat is. But uh, it seems like there's there's no longer the same appreciation for fantastically told stories in, in short amount of, amounts of time. And I dare say that actually plays a large part in why we're getting these ridiculously long pay-per-views now, because it's like every match has to be at least 15 minutes long. Yeah, I agree with that. And what was the time difference between the two Raw matches in question? I I, I haven't timed them, but I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Bret Hart kid one in particular would be, I imagine, around 20, 25 minutes. Uh, I can't imagine the Neville Rollins matches any longer than 10. I do think it's easier today to, and, and this this would be my point of contention about time. Uh, historically, especially if we're looking at the vast majority of the WrestleMania era in totality. I think it's easier, just like in film, to tell a more thorough story in a longer period of time. I think it's it's the exceptional shorter match that can accomplish the same amount that a longer match does, simply because you've got you've got you've got to set it up. You've got to work your way through to the various different emotional high points, and it's easier to tell a story like that if you have more time to express the different character traits across the runtime than if you I think it's for instance I mean my it is my assertion that it's far easier to have a great wrestling match in 25 minutes than it is in 12 because of that so I think in in the case of both of the raw matches in question I don't I think maybe the kid and and Bret Hart and actually time you see the match not in, not incorporating commercial breaks is probably around 18 to 20 minutes Neville and, and Rollins, to my recollection, is probably clocks in around 13. So they each accomplish a lot in their runtime. So there are exceptions to the rule. But I'd say the rule generally tends to be that you're not going to have the opportunity to tell as thorough a story in 13 minutes as you could if you had double the time. Okay, well, that's fair enough. I mean, I don't want. I just wanted to raise that point before we delved into the rest of the show because it was, it was in my notes and we hadn't covered it. Uh, and I thought it was an interesting one worth bringing up. But ultimately, the three matches that I've listed are all matches that get, I would think, at least 20 minutes. I mean, I know the ladder match is, is 35 minutes long. Uh, I dare say that the WrestleMania match is probably around 25, 30 minutes long. Um, so let's take them one by one. So first of all, this, the triple threat match at the 2015 uh, Royal Rumble. I'll put sort of forward my argument first, which is that I think that uh, you know, you're 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 looking at a, a match, and it's kind of snuck under the radar, actually. The a triple threat match. Well, first of all, triple threat matches since WrestleMania 20, particularly, have largely uh, watched not the same way, but the same tropes have recurred many, 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 many times. You, I, I dare say, you wouldn't get past one triple threat match since WrestleMania 20 that doesn't use at least one of the ideas that was used in that WrestleMania 20 triple threat. It really was, you know, genre defining for its, for its time. It totally, because up until that point, I dare say there hadn't even really been a single great, and maybe your star rating will, will back this up. I don't know, but I dare say from my perspective, there wasn't really a single great triple threat match. Certainly not a classic one up to that point. So you're talking about something that was, that was very definitive and informed pretty much to some degree, every triple threat that followed. You then get this 2015 one, which accomplished something that kind of snuck under the radar. It doesn't really get spoken about, but it's something that I've hinted at many times in the past, uh, which is that it, it kind of, it kind of, if not redefined the rulebook of triple threat matches, certainly suggested a complete alternative 
to uh, that that WrestleMania 21 uh, that has been employed many times since, which is the stru- you you look at the structure of that match, which is very simple. You have obviously uh, Lesnar, uh, who is um, you know in in final boss mode, as they say, quote unquote, practically unstoppable. Takes three attitude adjustments, gets straight back up again. You know, dominant force dominates the other two. Uh, then you have two guys who are who are of a much more competitive level, two characters at a much more competitive level, who work together to eliminate the threat, then rush to try and, and get a, a win while the major threat is down and out, only for the major threat to return and take us into the into the home stretch finish, and that's a that's a structure that was employed again in in any any uh, multi man Lesnar match for that matter, Fatal Four Ways as well. Uh, since that time, it was also a structure that was very interestingly employed in the Shield Triple Threat, where Roman Reigns substituted for the in the Brock Lesnar role. Um, I, I, I obviously haven't seen every Triple Threat match since, but those certainly on on major pay per view ones, that's a structure that's been followed uh, since. And and so you've seen a great variety of Triple Threat matches since that time uh, than you did between 2004 2015. So that's the first thing that it has going in its favour. I think is the fact that it was to some degree, uh, it reshaped its own genre. The second one is you've got a a hell of a lot of um, uh, character subtext in place here. You've got, first of all, the fact that Brock Lesnar, and interesting, I found one of the more interesting, um, one of the most interesting, I should say, entries into your book, Doc, the fact that you included uh, Lesnar's uh, stretch of time between WrestleMania 30 and WrestleMania 31. Um, And he's in the midst of that here, where he's, you know, he's this kind of uh, super-powered, uh, enhanced figure. He's consumed the streak at WrestleMania 30. He's consumed John Cena's legacy at SummerSlam. I mean, he is in an altered and augmented state like we've never seen him before. There's a lot of fantastical, uh, re- you know, there's a bit of wrestling fantasy involved in that. You've got one of John Cena's finest character performances because it's so restrained. And for a, for a character who was always kind of over the top and a bit hammy, uh, to see something as as subtle and paired back as Cena's role in this match is is really refreshing, and I think it's one of his finest career performances, frankly. Uh, and then you have, of course, Seth Rollins, who is in the middle of his of his arc with the Authority, playing very much the 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 spoiled brat, or as I've always framed it, the the addict who is just being fed success to make him dependent and less of a threat to Triple H, who I think has always had a certain fear of Seth, um, the characters, I mean. Um, and of course, he was he was Mr. Money in the Bank as well, which added another layer to it. And then underpinning all of that, you had this sense of a power struggle between the authority on the one hand, who had inserted Seth Rollins into this match and in the past had tried to use him to get the, the world title off of Brock Lesnar at, at Night of Champions, and Paul Heyman on the other one, who was, of course, Brock Lesnar's manager, who had a, 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 shall we say, less than pleasant history with the McMahon family, and who, through Brock and Brock's domination, essentially had complete control of, of the company because his client was the world heavyweight champion. So you have a, a hell of a lot of, of character subtext in there as well. And then the third aspect that I would sort of really champion and put forward, uh, well, you, you have the crowd response. I mean, we were talking about crowd response earlier. You have the time, uh, which we were talking about earlier. Um but it's just an absolutely fantastic match. I mean, I remember watching it live at the time, and I was literally jumping out of my... I mean, granted, I had a you know a vested interest, uh, but it had me jumping out of my seat. You know, Rollins get hit, nailing the... I think it's a frog splash on Lesnar through the announce table was an amazing moment uh, that was interestingly followed up on TV as well, it's worth saying, because he talked about how he discovered 
you know, Lesnar's one weakness and he had a game plan now that would beat Lesnar, which we've never seen come to fruition. I would love that to get sort of referenced if we do go for the Rollins-Lesnar match at WrestleMania this year. Uh, and I think in combination, you, you take all of these factors and it and it starts, to me at least, to feel very pedantic to then turn around and say, well, actually, you know, it's it's not an all-time classic match. I mean, it's a match to this day that gets spoken about excitedly by many fans. Like I said, it had a huge influence on its on its genre, a huge influence on the creative direction of the company. Um, I, you know, like I, like I said, uh, leading into this, it absolutely, in my mind, if I, if I was into star ratings, it would be getting five stars across the board. Well, uh, I want to preface our Seth Rollins conversation by accentuating the, the idea that uh, you and I do absolutely share a favorite wrestler of this generation, not of all time, but of this generation. I'm a big Seth Rollins fan myself. Um, this, this match in particular was part of the reason why. You know, I was really, really impressed with everything he did in 2014, and then this match took it to another level. Uh, Seth Rollins is not the problem, in my mind, if we're going to have a five-star conversation about this performance. I, I, I think that this is absolutely, again, let me preface by saying I think all three matches in question are classics. I think they're all three uh, bordering on, if not outright, all-time great. Uh, but we're having a conversation about five star, which in my mind inherently means we're talking about a candidate for one of the greatest matches of all time. And when I look back at this, I think in the moment I would have said yes. And I think, you know, those people who, who, who label with star ratings matches based largely on how they felt about it in the moment uh, would have agreed that it was as close as Seth Rollins probably has gotten to date to having a five star match. Meltzer, I know, race it four and three quarters, uh, you know, so for whatever that's worth. And there were a lot of people who felt like this was the match of 2015. I was actually just listening to a podcast on this very match on my way over to my office to record this podcast. So and it got a lot of accolades, heck of a lot of accolades. In the interest of the five star discussion, though. Seth Rollins, again, is not the problem. Seth Rollins had a five-star performance in this match. To me, re-watching it, the problem is Brock. I think Brock's formula, the formula you referenced that's been so popular in triple threat matches, I think it is. Uh, it, it very much favors an in-the-moment sort of drama. It's not the kind of drama I feel like holds up very well when you rewatch it. I think that Brock Lesnar... At the time, you take all of those things that were going in the favor of that type of formula being created, where he was so dominant to a level of at which we had never seen before. And then you've got the other competing elements. You've got John Cena, who's, you know, still in many ways, still at the peak of his powers. He's not he's starting to to sort of downshift a little bit. But just a few short months later, he was the the WWE champion. He was the focal point. Uh, he was one of the focal points on Raw for much of that stretch. But Seth Rollins is clearly in that ascending kind of mode in this match. And, and so Seth Rollins and John Cena, I think both of their performances hold up quite well. But And Seth Rollins especially, that still watches as a main event level breakout kind of moment for him. But the, the problem for me with calling it five stars is that when you go back and you look at, you know, Brock Lesnar's just just like a gorilla throwing people around without, you know, barely a care 
you know, dropping Seth on it, high and tight on his shoulder. That could have been one of those moments that uh, derailed much of what Rollins accomplished that year. Um, you've got you've got that element of the story that's told and it's told very well, but I don't think it's the kind of story that you can replay. Or it certainly hasn't proven that way for me. And I actually, if you have read the column that Plan referenced, that uh, that I've been posting skullduggeries from the OLP column forum, uh, his greatest Royal Rumble matches, epic. That's what I reference, is I reference that this is just not a match that I feel is particularly rewatchable. Now, it might be, you ask me this question five years from now, when I'm not on Brock Lesnar beast mode overload, then I might feel a lot differently about it with the passage of time. But right now, at this moment, I felt this way at the end of 2015. I felt this way at the end stage of where to rank it in the book process about a year ago, and I feel that way having recently rewatched it again feeling like I needed one more revisit to fully uh, comment in this column series that we're, that we're talking about. I just, I think it, it's one of those matches that's right there on the borderline. It's still an all time great, but I wouldn't put it in one of those in the category of this is one of the greatest matches ever. Well, let me count that to a certain degree because, you know, I mean, I'm as sick of, of the, the whole Lesnar thing at this point as, as anyone is. Um, in the you know if in the context of that match though, um, you sort of forgetting everything that's that's happened recently, uh, and forgetting the issues that have cropped up around Lesnar relying a little too much on the same formula over the years as his stint in WWE has gone on. Um, in the context of that match, bell to bell, I don't think that it it hinders the story at all. And in fact, the the story that's told in that match would not be possible were it not for the fact. That Lesnar is is presented in in the manner that he is. I mean, one of the moments that I love most of all in the match is very very early on, uh, where Lesnar knees he just knees Seth Rollins in the abdomen, uh, and one of the reasons why I love that so much is because the way that Rollins sells that knee is as if he's just discovered a whole new world of pain. And that plays off of something that had happened in the TV build where Cena had been lecturing Rollins about how being in the ring with Lesnar was a, you know, a whole other experience that he'd never known. Cena did know it. He'd known it two or three times by that point. And so you know, just in a small moment like that, you've immediately got them playing off of elements of the TV build, playing off of character subtext, both in terms of Lesnar's dominance and, and Rollins being kind of a presumptuous little brat. Um, and it adds urgency to the whole thing as well. I mean, the, one of the only reasons why that match is as effective as it is, I think, is because it has this really, really palpable sense of urgency. Even in the slower moments when Lesnar is dominating, there's a sense of urgency to try and get the title off of him. You don't want to have that going on for too long because Lesnar's just going to absolutely lay waste to you. In fact, it reminds me very much of... Um, large portions of the film Avengers Infinity War that came out this year, which, um, you know, sees uh, the supervillain Thanos uh, run riot across the the universe uh, and has a number of fights with our heroes in which they're completely outmatched. But the sense of urgency throughout that entire story, again, is, is incredibly palpable. And when you get moments where, you know, heroes like Captain America or Iron Man are starting to maybe finally get get something over on Thanos you, you're almost coming out of your seat for them to win and I think that this is this match this triple threat match uh, is is very uh, similar so if the 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 biggest thing going against it is the portrayal of Lesnar um, then that strikes me as something that's so core to the story they tell 
that you almost either have to it's like it's like one of two extremes you either have to go all in with it um or or just totally write it off because without that performance from Lesnar you ultimately don't have that match and I, I can I, I, to, I can totally agree with that. I think that is totally fair. I think, okay. uh, you know, I think looking at it from the sports entertainment perspective, the, uh, you know, listeners a little sloppy throughout and didn't like that particularly much. I mean, if we're talking again, if not to, to knock the, the match for, nope, for that, I, no, 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 sure. But, but at the same time, I mean, if we're talking about, is this match one of the best of all time, which I think inherently, if we're talking five stars, that's what we're doing. Then little things like the the slower moments that stand out a lot more in replay than they do in that in them in the moment. I mean, you're you have that palpable sense. I think where I would disagree is that that palpable sense carries over into future watches. Whereas in the moment, I mean, you it couldn't help but feel that because that was a case where the build up to that match I thought was tremendous because you've got all three of these competing sort of personalities and 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 uh and motivations coalescing into a scenario where that felt in the moment like one of the biggest wwe title matches in quite some time yeah you know and and then the crowd i think responded accordingly to that and seth rollins with his performance and you know so it's got a lot of historical things going for it it's got the fact that that was brock lesnar's best stretch in wwe uh since he came back just in terms of him being at the peak of his powers and then putting him in a position where it felt like if someone beat him, it was going to be one of the biggest wins anyone's ever had. And you felt like maybe Rollins could do that. And you I know personally, I felt like there's no way I want Cena to do that. Yeah. There was the element of not wanting Cena to beat Rollins. Cause that would have been, that would have sucked. And then there was the element of, okay, Rollins, let's have him win by any means necessary. And then if not, maybe he's going to cash in afterwards there's a lot of emotional things going for that, that I think when you talk about psychology and you talk about how well everybody sold their part, I think when you talk about the climax and you talk about the crowd involvement and the buildup, all of those things work for it. The one downside, in my opinion, is that execution, the way it's executed, it's executed to a point where there's a couple of things I could nitpick and, and, and ultimately not feel comfortable calling it a five-star match. But I think that's one of the of the three you've the, of the three you've put forth, I think that is the most likely to reach that level as time goes on, as any I'm, of the others, because it's got so many elements working for it, and there's very very little working against it. Interesting point you make about um, Lesnar's uh, sort of sloppiness. You mentioned earlier his uh, you know Rollins uh, a bad throw on Rollins. One of the the major points of contention between us is is the first Undertaker Shawn Michaels match at WrestleMania 25, um, which I know you you continue to think very very highly of. Um, just very quickly, do you still consider that the the best match ever, or did you ever consider it the best match ever? Sorry, if I maybe I've misunderstood. I have at times thought so. Okay. I th- I think that it is. It right now is having to contend with so many, <laughs> so many matches of its kind that have followed it. That okay, um, okay. Well, that's that's fair enough. I mean, the yeah. only reason I bring it up is because of you know one of the one of the things I've I've always argued with you is you know you have that massive botch smack bang in the middle of the match where Undertaker basically tries and kills himself and lands on his head, uh, and you've always kind of contested. Look, if it, if it adds to 
you know the 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 story they're telling if it if it contributes to the atmosphere then it shouldn't really be held against the match um i know you're not going to agree but i think there may be there may be an argument to say you know as 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 condemnable as it is and should be uh, for him to perform that way that that lesnar manhandling his opponents is designed to contribute to the atmosphere of of lesnar matches in this one included yeah, I can, I can, I certainly. Let's put it this way: I, I certainly am not going to be so black and white about it as to say that that's that I feel like that's wrong. I get what you're saying. I disagree with it. I think that you know, pro wrestling is inherently about you know. I looked. I don't know. I've always kind of looked at stuff like that as as a flubbed line in a script. It's like, oh wait, you know, it's like in the in the movie. Uh, days of thunder they're walking around by a lake and someone refers to tom cruise as tom it's like hi tom like wait his character's name is cole it's not tom (laughs) so it's you know enough to if you nitpick it for purposes like these then you can um you can find that flaw and and, and in a case like undertaker Shawn michaels that particular case i mean technically yes it's a it's a it's a botch but also one of the most dramatic moments in the match is Shawn Michaels trying to win by countout, and if he just had done his typical dive that we'd seen a thousand times and hit the cameraman, then that countout would not have been nearly as effective as if the sequence had as it was by way of you know literally you could make the argument in the moment you're like did Undertaker just die? I mean he <laughs> dove over the top rope and landed on his head, like literally he just just missed the mark completely and landed on his head is he going to actually be able to continue this match and i think that's i have an easier time because it's wrestlemania and because the crowd's going crazy and because of the investment in those characters historically and all that led up to that match in the first place in the years i don't want to go on and on about that but just to say that (laughs) i think it's inherently it may it may be fall into the same category, but I think it's one of those instances where you could make the argument a pretty strong one that it's not the same thing. Okay. Fair enough. Um, just playing devil's advocate, really. Um, okay, well, the second match that I suggested, uh, it perplexes me to this day that this was as divisive as it was at the time. I still don't understand why there was the reaction that there was to it because I, I, I'm talking about the ladder match with Dean Ambrose at Money in the Bank 2015 for the world title. Now, I very, very distinctly remember that weekend because I didn't watch the show live, but I did wake up early the next morning and watched it first thing without spoilers, the entire show. And I got to the main event. You know, I hadn't logged on to social media, anything. I went in completely blind, stayed completely blind for the whole show. And I watched that main event and I just immediately fell head over heels in love with it. I thought it was an absolute masterpiece. And I was expecting to find rave reviews, and I instead I logged onto social media, and there was a lot of cynicism, there was a lot of divisiveness. Um, I had arguments with people who were affronted by the fact that I liked it so much. And one, I mean, one of the things that I detail in my book about performance art, 101 WWE matches to see before you die, is the benefits of shifting to think about gimmick matches and wrestling matches generally in terms of genre with the ladder match being a perfect example of genre because one of the benefits of doing that is as you identify the tropes that mark a specific genre you begin to better understand the way that that wrestling fans um 
the better understand why wrestling fans perhaps reacted the way they did. And obviously that ladder match was not a typical uh, ladder match, particularly of this day and age. It was a lot slower. It was even by the, I mean, I know, for example, Doc, that you split them into sort of two categories, the stunt brawl and the the story-driven style. I think even in comparison to other story-driven ladder matches, it was, again, uh, very kind of slow burn. Uh, it very much a Dean Ambrose match, actually, um, very cerebral. But when I watch it back, um, you know, I mean, I find every the logic that underpins every single thing that those two guys do in that match, uh, to me, is is absolutely flawless. I mean, pe- one of the things that people point out to me, criticism of it, is when Seth runs up the uh, aisle away from Ambrose, and like, why would he do that when the aim is to to grab the title and the answer is well Ambrose's leg was practically hanging off by that point so Rollins is knows that Ambrose is going to pursue him because you know that's what Ambrose does when it comes to Rollins uh, banks on that happening Ambrose pursues him he lays him out in the aisle he's got all that time then to climb the ladder and get the title and Ambrose has got to try and limp his way back to the ring so it's about creating space to lend yourself an advantage and that's very uh, distinctive about Rollins's character, which is something that Maverick and I are exploring in recent weeks, which is he's able to think five, six, ten, twelve moves ahead of his opponent. Uh, it's why he's the architect. So it, it you know, I mean, I, 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 I let you have your say in a second, but, but to me, again, it's 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 not perhaps had the same influence on its genre thereafter. I mean, the ladder match has really kind of just continued to be the ladder match. I, if I was feeling brave. Maybe I would start to, to, to try and formulate some argument where you could say that perhaps story-driven ladder matches have become a bit more commonplace since that time, but I think you really struggle to say that it's had a, a major influence on other ladder matches since. Um, the crowd response, particularly if we were going to adhere to your formula, Doc, I think is probably one area where maybe it lets it down, though I think it's notable that by the time you get to the closing portions of the match, uh, the crowd are, uh, you know, are, are really quite into it, um, especially the big bump that Rollins takes as a backdrop onto the ladder on the outside. Um, but to me, this is simply a case of a match, again, if I was into star ratings, that I would say is five stars, just because I think it's that damn good. I mean, I really do think that it is that it is flawless, honestly. There's, there's no, As far as I can remember, there's no real botches in there. Um, you know, the, they never really, the match never seems to grind to a hold because they're setting up the next spot. Um, it's expansive. I mean, there's there's figure four leg locks and there's stuff with steel chairs and ring steps and and all kinds of stuff. I think, and this is what I wrote in my notes when you gave me the list of matches that we would likely discuss. I wrote down that this is a performance art masterpiece, but for sports entertainment, it's only great. Uh, okay. Which is which is to say that I think uh, you know. Yeah, I don't. Do you remember? It? I don't. Don't if you remember this specific line in my book, but I always thought it would probably resonate with you. In my book, I called this match the the Bret Hart Owen Hart cage match of ladder matches. I do remember that. Yeah. I actually thought that while I was watching it the first time, and you know, you and I both are huge fans of that cage match. I think, right? We're both absolutely massive fans of that cage match. So I I felt like this is a match that I'm going to love. And that people who loved the Bret Hart Owen Hart cage match would love, but that other people who are inherently depend, who just who just think of ladder matches as being this certain thing, um, wouldn't like it because 
I mean, I look at this match and I think there is a, there is no other ladder match like it. Of however, I mean, there's probably been north of a hundred ladder matches in WWE to this point. Easily, I would think. Yeah. I mean, as of a few years ago, when I was writing a column on it, there were like 69 of them, and there's oh, okay. at least been, uh, and that was I think including TLC matches too. So I mean, I think that there's obviously been there's there were we should be into the triple digits by now. This one stands out on its own. There's nothing else like it. There's no other ladder match. Uh, in WWE lore, that's been as long as this one. I think the North the North American title match in NXT, if you want to count that, it is. But it's such a different type of match since there's six people involved. It doesn't I think, count. I think that's that's thirty, uh, and this one's thirty-five. I think. Gotcha. So I mean, you've yeah. inherently got a longer ladder match than than that there, there than there's ever been. But I think you know your. Your comment about the crowd is the, is my easy counter to why I don't yep. consider this a five star match is because I, I'd say this is a three star crowd, if you will. I mean, they're just okay. they're burnt out from the Kevin Owens John Cena match. Um, that that card inherently was wasn't there something else on that? I mean, you already had a ladder match on that card. You had the Money in the Bank match that opened the show. A very but, good one as well, I have to say. Yeah, I can't even remember who won that. Uh, Sheamus that won that. Sheamus one. won that one. Yes. And maybe there was something else that was halfway interesting on that card too. Um, I think those were the three. Those were the three big ones. I think. So you've got, you know, this was one of those instances where, you know, the crowd got its main event wrestling match <laughs> by the time Kevin Owens versus John Cena was over. Because I mean, that's obviously that is to a lot of people that's main event wrestling style, right, right that, right there. And it was that match was 20 plus minutes in its own right of that popular style of near fall heavy stuff and moves galore and when you see something like ambrose and rollins i think most of the ambrose rollins matches for the vast majority of fans would be viewed better if they watched them in isolation of the show on which they took place because you know for the your i think for future reference man i mean if you've never thought about this if you want to know how people online are going to react to a seth rollins match just see how well the crowd reacted live. Cause I feel like every Seth Rollins match that generally gets a great rating from the masses, all of them have hot crowds, any yeah. crowd like this. And I hate to say it, and I'm only going to say it on here cause I don't want to put it out on social media in the event that somebody from, you know, I know this is unlikely, but just in the event <laughs> that someone from WWE has followed me for, for any length of time and is going to judge partly what they suggest on what I say, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put this out there on social media, but Seth Rollins matches have a bad tendency of falling victim to this type of thing where his great work. And we're going to talk about it in a moment again with the next match or his great work. And in my opinion, his greatest work from a one-on-one -on -one standpoint, especially most of those matches suffer from crowds that for whatever reason, just aren't that into it. In the moment, and and it's it's it sucks because I think that Seth Rollins is 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 someone who has unbelievably unbelievably nuanced matches. That's my that's my term about Seth Rollins matches is that they're incredibly nuanced. But I don't think people appreciate that in the moment when they've already gotten a barrage of near fall heavy stuff. That's that's the downside to the to the to the modern fan environment is if if, if Seth Rollins goes on before all that. Most of the time, gets a great crowd response. But if you put him on after it, then it's tough for his matches 
to get the same kind of response. And if you're looking at it from the sports entertainment perspective, that big three-star crowd lays a big egg when it comes to evaluating it against its peers that got the crowd going nuts. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, from an observational perspective, I think you're absolutely uh, bang on. Uh, you know, I mean, if uh, we've only got 20 minutes left on this show here, so uh, it's really, there's not enough time for me to start uh, saying why I'm such a massive fan of his, particularly with his ring work, because that's probably a five-hour show in and of itself. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, you're bang on. And, it, and as, as such a massive Seth Rollins fan who so desperately wants to see him succeed in the way I think he's... He, doesn't only deserve but but has earned several times over um it's a it's such a constant and repeating source of frustration that that seems to happen um because you know i mean his his career already is if you were to write down sort of his accomplishments on paper is already pretty mind-blowing to say that he's only in his early 30s and could potentially have another 10 years ahead of him yet um you know it it's insane but um I mean, it. So let's because we we are running out of time. Um, so I will not hang on that ladder match too much because I do want to get to the triple threat. Uh, the, sorry, the triple H match. This is a match with an immense amount of personal meaning to me that I'm not going to get into on this show. Um, but also a match that um, on the night I found to be immensely gripping. I thought the the final go home segment leading into it was between Triple H and the Rollins when they signed their contract was actually one of the best TV segments we've had in a very very long time, um, and for whatever reason nobody talks about it, but I thought it was it was incredible, incredibly nuanced. Again, is the word that you just used, and I think it applies to that. The match I think is incredibly nuanced. Um, Vince was a huge fan of the performance. I mean, if you've watched the, I think it's a WWE 24 about WrestleMania 33 that year, you see a clip of Rollins coming backstage after the match and he gets a hug from Vince who tells him he'll be proud of that performance the next morning. And then they interview Rollins and he seems very emotional about the win. It comes really as the match that kick-started in earnest the incredible arc that Seth Rollins' character has been on over the last couple of years, which again has spoken to me, certainly as a fan on a very personal level, and I've found to be very inspiring in my my own life. Um, but the match itself, I mean, you were, fair to say, I think, a, a big fan of this match as well, and I seem to remember throughout that year, you would you would every now and then just point out that, you know, it's, it's a tremendous match. Obviously, again, the, the crowd response kind of comes into this one, but, you know, in an open-air stadium, I mean, it's always difficult to get that same kind of atmosphere anyway, I think, because obviously you lose all the noise to the to the, to the the sky, but um, in the middle of a very long show. Um, but I think, did, did you name this your match of that year? I mean, I know I certainly did. It's my personal favorite match of the year, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I thought that this was the one, this was the match I, I felt like... Um, God, every element was there. Every element was there for this to be a five-star classic, and just in those traditional terms. But, you know, again, it ran up against that. I mean, a lot of the same themes that I think prevent it from reaching that status we just discussed in, in Ambrose versus Rollins in their ladder match. But in terms of just the performance here, which, I mean, I, there's a point I want to bring up about it in a moment after you, after you, after you throw me the ball back. But, you know, this is, to me, there are two matches I hold up in Seth Rollins' career that are better than any other, and and this is one of them. Can I ask what the other one is? The Roman Reigns match at Money in the Bank. I okay. love that match probably more than anyone on the planet. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. I mean, by the way, 
Um, you know, Seth Rollins, a guy who had, a, what was it, like a six, seven month layoff from a major injury, comes back, wrestles his first match, and it's a match of a strong match of the year contender, if not a match of the year winner. Uh, there aren't many people who've accomplished that in their careers. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. You and I are, are on the same page about pretty much everything you say about Seth Rollins. I agree with, except, except for the whole five star thing. That's, that's, that's pretty much it. Which, I want him be... to, I really, really want him to. I think he, he needs that for, you know, for, for whatever goofy reason, people don't like his style. I think he, if he wanted to go out and do an AJ Styles type match, he could do that. 50 Easily. times a week and it would yeah. be better than AJ Styles matches in my opinion because he's more nuanced. It just does. But I kind of but I kind of admire the fact. I mean, I love him even more for the fact that he could do that but doesn't. You know, as as much as that might hinder his matches in terms of like, you know, where he's coming on the card and and live crowds and stuff. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of Dean Ambrose as well. I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, obviously Rollins is my number one guy by quite some distance, but if there was ever anyone who was a threat at maybe dethroning that one day, it would be Dean, just because Dean has that same ethos of, you know, we could go out and do, you know, what John Cena has been doing for the last few years or what AJ Styles does like Clockwork or all these other guys like Johnny Gargano, but we're not going to do that because we're, you know, they strike me as two guys who are you know huge huge lovers of the art form of professional wrestling but who demonstrate that perhaps more than anybody through the kinds of matches that they have i agree and i think the triple h match with seth rollins is an incredible example of that because it was you know it took this this concept i mean the the, what led to the non-sanctioned part i always thought was really cool because the non-sanctioned part basically came from the idea that seth was injured Mm. and, and he was barely going to make it to WrestleMania, you know, he's, you know, the whole thing, like we knew he was cleared in sports entertainment terms, but in terms of that character, there was legitimate doubt produced by something that happened in real life when he injured, when he re-injured that knee. And for him to make it to WrestleMania for me was partly the catharsis, much in, much in the same way, obviously on a different level than the Daniel Bryan thing. When Daniel Bryan got those matches at WrestleMania 30, that was the catharsis. It wasn't the matches themselves. It was, the catharsis was just him getting them um, with Seth Rollins. It was, you know, everyone had this big complaint and, you know, Dave Meltzer, my God, man, he rated this three and three quarter stars. Like he didn't even think it was great. And I, to me, that baffles me. But again, I mean, what Meltzer thinks combined with the way the crowd reacts is usually a pretty good indicator of the way that the masses are going to feel about a performance. And in this one, I've just always totally disagreed with, because I think if you go in and you just watch it from the perspective of what story they were clearly trying to tell. Well, there was no way this was going to be Shawn Michaels versus Triple H because what made it non-sanctioned wasn't that Shawn Michaels was, you know, wasn't that Seth Rollins was coming back from a career-ending injury. I mean, Shawn Michaels was healthy, you know. I mean, Shawn Michaels was healthy in that match. It was just that there was the whole he's he retired type thing. Seth Rollins was coming back from an from an acute knee injury and knee surgery. So it wasn't going to be, he wasn't healthy. He wasn't going into the match healthy. So the focus being more cerebral and on the knee, that's what tells the story because he sold as better as well as about anyone I've ever seen in that match. He sold his knee injury. So when he hit moves like the Phoenix splash, like that's one of my favorite moments in that match is when he hits the Phoenix splash. And then the other is when he does the buckle bomb, despite 
having the knee all torn up. It's like he does that so much better than just about anyone in the game right now that that is what you, you've got to you have to focus on that part. You can't focus on what that match should have been, which goes into a whole different tangent about fans having expectations, but not giving it a chance to actually tell the well, story it wants to tell after the fact, after those expectations are naturally gone. I mean, that's, I mentioned thinking about matches in terms of genre, and that's one of the benefits is you can strive to sort of understand that a bit more. And if fans did feel a little let down because this wasn't the kind of unsanctioned match that they've seen in the HBK Triple H match or more recently the Gargano Champa match, um, then ultimately, you know, that speaks to the quote-unquote unsanctioned match as a genre. Um, and this was very subversive in that regard, which I would fully expect from from a guy like Rollins, who is, is to my mind, very much a post-modern macho man Randy Savage. Um, and, you know, you're I mean, you're absolutely bang on everything you say. And, and I don't have the time to go into real detail now, but, I mean, the way that that feeds into subtext about their both of men's characters... Uh, and their relationship with one another over the years, and what informed that over the years, and why that even happened, and the whole reason why that match exists was all fed into, and in, in, reciprocate, in, in reciprocal fashion, the story they told in the match fed into all of that background because of the focus on Rollins and the and Triple H trying to take it out. You know, I mean, that, that segment I referenced where they signed the contract, there's one incredible moment in it where Triple H tells Seth, no one-legged man has ever won an ass-kicking contest ever. But he kind of screams the word ever at him, uh, almost like he's panicked, his voice kind of breaks a little bit, uh, and, and you see the game lose control in the way that you've never really seen him lose control before, and that really spoke to that segment and is one of the reasons why I wrote a long column of it uh, on it, which was incredibly uh, retweeted by Seth, which is my wallpaper on my desktop because it was such an incredible feeling when that happened. You know, for your favorite wrestler to not just read your column, but then to retweet it and recommend it was was phenomenal. So, um, unfortunately, I've got to wrap us up. We've kind of run out of time here. Um, but what will what I will do, because I feel like we haven't um, we haven't really gone into as much detail as I would. Um, have liked to have done with Triple H Rollins. If you're happy to, Doc, I'd like to suggest that that be the first of the 10 matches that we would discuss on a later show. Absolutely. Yeah, I love talking about that match. Okay, well, we'll do that then. So, to remind you folks, um, you know, obviously, at the Doc LOP, at LOP Plan, we want uh, suggestions for now nine matches, because the first one's going to be Triple H versus Seth Rollins. Uh, Nine matches... WWE across the years or across the decades um, and uh, we will at a later date we'll sit down and we'll talk about them from a sports entertainment perspective and we'll talk about them from a performance type perspective for no real, real reason other than to test Doc's theory earlier that maybe rankings would turn out the same way if we both did it using the same formula uh, and just have a bit of fun so do do be sure to do that uh, in the meantime uh, you can pick up Doc's book which is on sale as he said earlier um, the greatest matches and rivalries of the Wrestlemania era the e-copy is currently on sale for did you say 699 699 699 so you can pick that up from can they get it from Amazon yes yes excellent so Amazon head over pick that up it's well worth the read guys 
Uh, and I was about to say it's not too late to buy it as a Christmas present because I'm uh, recording this on the Saturday before Christmas. But by the time it goes out, it's Boxing Day, so it kind of is a bit late to buy it for Christmas present. We'll buy it anyway. Why not? <laughs> Boxing <you>. Day sale. <laughs> um, so you can go check that out. You can also still buy my book, incidentally, 101 WWE matches to see before you die. Still available to buy on Amazon. So do please go and pick up a copy if you haven't already, if you fancy it. I'll be back next week with a two-hour special once again as I break down my choices for match of the year in the various different categories that I'll be doing, including a special recognition one just for Seth, because otherwise it would just be five Seth Rollins matches, and frankly, nobody wants to sit and listen to me gush about Seth for two hours. So, all that being said, tune in next week. Doc, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've had an absolute blast discussing all this stuff with you. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. It has been a pleasure, man. I had a great time as well. I'd love to come back someday and do do more shows with you so uh, thank you for having me get those suggestions in folks and maybe we'll do it sometime around wrestlemania time next year that seems like a decent time to uh, to do another uh, couple of hour long specials um so until then i will see you all next week have a good one folks <laughs>